The title sponsor of Hunt Talk Radio is Leupold. Leupold Optics are the trusted optics of accomplished hunters and shooters. If it has a gold ring on it, you know it was built by American hands in Beaverton, Oregon. Whether it's a new rifle scope, binocular, a spotter, rangefinder, or eyewear, go to leupold.com to learn more and look for these fine Leupold products at your high-quality retailers. Hey folks, Randy Newberg here. Welcome to Leupold's Hunt Talk Radio. As I was walking, I saw a sign thing on the sign. It said no trespassing, but on the other side, it didn't say nothing. Well, that sign was made for you and me. Hey folks, welcome to another episode of Leopold's Hunt Talk Radio. Today I have two great guests who are joining me from North Dakota and Wisconsin. I uh, feel really lucky that they're able to give me some of their time. Um, there's this issue that keeps popping up, been out there for a long time, called CWD, chronic wasting disease. Um, and it seems like every couple of years we start having these bubbles of activity where, oh, I don't know what term I'd use to it, but the, the pot starts boiling over on this stuff. And in the media space, we end up with some people who, maybe I'm saying this incorrectly, but here's how it appears from where I sit. There are some folks with media platforms who are on purposeful disinformation campaigns. And we already have a super difficult job as it relates to managing CWD, chronic wasting disease. And going out there and hacking on scientists and biologists, especially by people who aren't trained in it, doesn't do us much good. Now, most scientists and biologists I talk to say, hey, if you got some data that's better than ours, let me know. You know, I'm I'm here looking for solutions. Um, so the reason I, I asked Charlie and Brian to be on today is uh, it's really boiling up in, in North Dakota. And I'm not sure why other than North Dakota is one of the the Midwest states that allows baiting. And it seems like in the context of baiting, some groups want to uh, make a bigger issue of it beyond something other than just a disease management issue. Okay, we, we only have so many tools available to us in how we're going to manage this disease. And one of them is separation. Now, whether that's separation of baiting or other unnatural causes, unnatural causes are much higher than concentrations than natural concentrations. And no, nobody I know yet today has tried to argue that uh, naturally dispersed, natural behaviors, natural interactions are a much higher rate of risk than baiting or feeding. Uh, whatever uh, unnatural accumulation you end up with. So uh, seeing how that's unfolding in North Dakota, I thought, well, maybe if I could get some people on the podcast who know that and understand it and are right there in the context of where it's happening and this big debate's happening in North Dakota, 
maybe it'd be helpful. But I also want to talk about the bigger picture of this disease, the bigger picture of what we have in front of us, and how it's very possible that the outcomes are not what we want. It just is what it is. But most people will tell you the outcome of doing nothing is a way worse outcome. So uh, with me uh, is Charlie Bonson. Uh, he's a veterinarian, wildlife veterinarian with North Dakota Game and Fish. And then uh, Brian Richards, he's been at this forever. He's, I think his title is Emerging Disease Coordinator and the CWD project leader for the U.S. Geological Survey National Wildlife Health Center. Yeah, that's like a health center, like a wildlife think tank where really <laughs> guys way, way smarter than me get out in front of and study these wildlife diseases, all kinds of different wildlife diseases. And, and Brian has been doing that for a long time. So... My job is to ask questions, to let them bring perspectives and bring information so that all of us can be more informed. You all know I did a podcast a couple of years ago with two other wildlife disease specialists. I want us to have the best information possible, not necessarily the information that Randy wishes he would have. Okay? I wish it would all go away. I wish that everybody could just keep hunting how they are, whether it's the way I hunt or not the way I hunt. I wish we didn't have to deal with this, but we do. So the more information we have, the better decisions we can make, the less influenced we are by those who might have motives to spread disinformation and uh, folks who seem to not well, they claim they agree with science so long as it's science that results in their outcome. But uh, And the disclaimer always is whenever I have uh, scientists and biologists because objectivity is a huge part of their daily uh, work, any opinions, uh, any statements are mine and mine only. They they are not Charlie's and they are not Brian's. Okay. They are here to provide their facts, their expertise, and their information. So anyhow, appreciate y'all being here. Um as you'll probably notice now in our podcast, we've moved our ads to just kind of spots along the way. So as quick as I hit the button, you aren't gonna hear any ads. This is just gonna be me and and Charlie and Brian talking about chronic wasting disease and how it impacts hunters and what tools we have in our box, the toolbox to manage this. So thanks for being here. Hope you enjoy it. Well, folks, I told you I had some really cool guests with me today on a topic that everybody knows about. If you don't know about it, uh, you've been sleeping under a rock for the last 15 years. Uh, with me are uh, Brian Richards and Charlie Bonson. Uh, they're experts in a lot of this stuff that we're going to talk about. I am not. My expertise is being the communicator of this stuff that hopefully makes sense to my audience, which are hunters, uh, conservation-minded people. And so... I always rely on experts like 
Brian and Charlie, and uh, I'm going to let each of them introduce themselves. Uh, I'm going to start with you, Charlie, since before we hit the record button, Brian said, let Charlie go first. So uh, <laughs> let, let's, you're in Bismarck, North Dakota. And go from there. Yep, exactly. Uh, I'm, yeah, I'm Charlie Bonts, and I'm the wildlife veterinarian for North Dakota Game and Fish. Um, I don't know. Do you, do you want another 15 to 20 minute riff on? Sure. <laughs> the audience wants to know everything. Yeah. They want your, they're going to want your hunting spots, Charlie. They're going to want to know where you go fishing. So all you want to give them, add on. Yeah, I just so. want everybody not in North Dakota to just know there's no hunting or fishing here, so don't don't come, especially <laughs> in my walleye spots. So, uh, okay. So, how, how do you become a wildlife disease veterinarian or wildlife veterinarian for a game agency? Oh uh, yeah, you know there's there's multiple ways to to get here. I I was just really interested in wildlife. Worked for um, a couple, or I guess Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks, um, and through some animal handling, got really interested in uh, veterinary stuff. So I went to to vet school, and then when I finished vet school, I was still interested in uh, this particular route. So I went down to University of Georgia and um, did some further training, uh, worked for, did some disease work for uh, wildlife agencies in the Southeast and earned a PhD while there. And then from there came back to North Dakota, kind of where I'm from, essentially. I grew up in South Dakota, but a lot of my wife's people are all from here. So it was kind of a chance to come back and try to try to manage wildlife kind of in my, my home turf here. Cool. Well, Brian, you uh, b- before we hit the record button, Charlie said, you know, when you've been in this as long as Brian has, you get the title or the opportunity to be as much of a curmudgeon as you want to be. Now, I don't know if that's a compliment or if that's jealousy on his part, but uh, <laughs> you're, you're with the USGS, US Geological, is it Geological Survey? It is. Service? It is. Okay. Yep. Yeah. So, anyhow, let let the audience know your background, Brian. If they research CWD, they're going to come across some of your stuff. So, they they might hit it. Yeah, I'm I'm a I'm a wildlife biologist. Um, my technical title is emerging disease coordinator here at the uh, National Wildlife Health Center. We're we're located in Madison, Wisconsin. We are a uh, U.S. Geological Survey Science Center. And uh, our main focus is wildlife health and for the benefit of wildlife and ecosystems as well. Uh, we conduct diagnostics, uh, disease research, and, and, and provide a lot of epidemiological and technical assistance out to states, tribes, federal, international partners. So, um, yeah, I've had the, had the great pleasure of working with Charlie and a lot of our, uh, his cohorts in the, in the Midwest region for, well, let's say about 20 years now. Prior to that, I spent 11 years working for the state of Texas for Texas Parks and Wildlife Department, hmm. um, again, as a wildlife biologist at our Austin headquarters. And so even some of that time, you know, was, was tied in with disease work and especially, you know, gearing up for, for chronic wasting disease. And boy, has that picture changed over the course of the last 20 years. Yeah. Uh, you know, disease, wildlife disease issues, we're going to talk about chronic wasting disease in this, uh, podcast, but I've done podcasts on brucellosis, uh, 
you know, the big one that happened this year that we heard so much about is uh, avian flu. Are, are those issues that you guys, I mean, <laughs> it seems like you're thinly staffed and you, you got to be the, the uh, keeper of a thousand different things. Uh, when things like uh, avian flu pops up, is that, that those kind of things end up on your lap also? Pretty much on a uh, continuous basis, day to day, <laughs> hour to hour. I mean, if Brian you hasn't slept look, in probably a year and a half, but it yeah. seems like it. It seems like it. You know, you go back to when the center was, um, you know, established back in 1975, and you look at that timeline. You know, botulism, plague, cholera. Uh, West Nile virus, you know, chronic wasting disease, white nose syndrome in bats, you know, plague, you know, out in your part of the world and in prairie dogs and black-footed ferrets, um, chytrid disease in in amphibians. Uh, Last few years, we started dealing with a phenomenon called, you know, rabbit hemorrhagic disease, you know, Mm -hmm. in in lagomorphs. Now, fortunately, it stayed pretty much, you know, west of where we are, but you know, some pretty substantial impacts. Then we've got um, unknown consequences of, you know, SARS-CoV-2, you know, the virus that, you know, resulted in COVID in humans. We, we have some really interesting, you know, preliminary results, you know, suggesting that, you know, deer can be carriers of this virus yeah. as well. And so, yeah, it's a... Uh, uh, over time, we've seen this trend of, of infectious diseases, emerging infectious diseases, increasing in frequency, increasing in the magnitude of their consequences, you know, not only to wildlife, but to domestic livestock and humans as well. I mean, just look at the last three years, you know, we've got yeah. some pretty substantial consequences of a, a virus that originated in wildlife. Yeah. Well, and that's a great example because you read with what happened with the last three years, there were some people who were advocating we quit harvesting wildlife because of disease concerns, you know, and how the transmissibility, if that's a term, that's an accountant's term, uh, how that effect could could relate to humans and human health. And so I, I think I live an interesting life. I can't imagine you guys. I, I, I got it. I got it easy. <laughs> uh, but in this discussion, we're going to talk about chronic wasting disease, and you know, every seems like so many people are experts, uh, armchair experts. I, 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 I'm using air quotations to say experts. I always invite experts on this podcast uh, because I don't know this stuff. Uh, but historically, we've all benefited from people like the two of you the research you do, the objectivity that comes with your work. Uh, I think it was three years ago uh, I did a podcast because there seemed to be some interesting public media campaigns from certain people. Uh, And I had Dr. Kelly Straka, who is, I think she's now with the Minnesota DNR. She was with Michigan at the time. Uh, Dr. Kristen Schuler at Cornell University. And and we focus mostly on science issues in that podcast. Uh, they they did a great job of it. Um, but for you guys, I the re- the reason I, I really want Charlie in on this is because there's an awful lot of discussion about this going on in North Dakota. 
it seems to have reached beyond a boiling point. Maybe it's boiling over onto the stovetop and down onto the floor now. Uh, and I'm going to give the disclaimer to protect you guys that any any comments related to policy the process of policy to become politics and policymakers are all the comments and opinions of Randy Newberg. <laughs> they, they are not the comments or opinions of Charlie or Brian. So, uh, Brian and so, I, Brian and I have neither comments nor opinions. Okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that, that's good. That's, yeah. <laughs> I love that. That That's yeah. the way it, it and it, we kind of laugh when you said that, Charlie, but that is the purpose of science, right? It's objective. It's not to be swayed by desired outcomes. And it seems like a lot of times when this issue, chronic wasting disease, becomes so controversial, it's because some of the science as we're learning as we go maybe doesn't fit the desired outcomes. And so we end up in with the pot boiling over, to use my my expression earlier but uh what's the the state of and both of you chime in here the the level of cwd in the midwest states we know that you know in my home state we've talked about it on this podcast we've got cwd here um is it growing is it expanding is it is it static what what's the status of it in say North Dakota or where you're at, Brian, in Wisconsin or or any of the places in between. Well, I guess we could we could start, yeah, with Montana. You know, um, if you take yeah. a look at the at the North American distribution of, of CWD as we know it, if you looked at it ten years ago, you'd have a tremendous geographic area in Saskatchewan and Alberta that was kind of like a checkerboard, and the checkers were filling in over time of management areas. You had another you know, tremendous geographic area in Wyoming, Colorado, and Nebraska, and then you know points east of there, and and Montana was kind of hollow. You know, um, yeah. wasn't any shading on the map. And you take a look at it today, and those two outbreaks, or we would refer to them as epizootics. You know, the one in Canada and the one in the uh, in the in the Plain states have now coalesced, and so they've come together right there in your backyard. And so yeah. I think that um, suggests that you know, disease is anything but static. You know, it continues to spread geographically in locations where disease has been established um, for longer periods of time. We've seen prevalence grow. Prevalence, I mean, the, you know, the proportion of animals from, from a specific population or cohort that test positive so, for example, if we take a look in the South Saskatchewan River Valley, uh, between 70 and 80 percent of adult males, deer, will be positive for chronic wasting disease. Got locations in 80. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, you know, if you if you so if you shoot a big male deer, you know, um, in, in Wisconsin, there's areas where you know it's approaching 50 percent prevalence. And so if you kill a, you know, three and a half year old whitetail buck in Iowa County, Wisconsin, take a quarter out of your pocket and flip it in the air. And those are the chances that deer has CWD. So now, um, you know, go to Saskatchewan, South Saskatchewan River Valley. The odds are way worse than that. 
you know, I mean, it, it, you've got to um, you've got to flip one out of four in order to find a, a deer that's not positive. And we see the same, you know, similar trends in areas of you know of Wyoming, Colorado, these states where it's been established longest. Disease is doing what it does best. It spreads, it grows, it kills some deer, and it predisposes others to an earlier demise, you know, from from those things that we typically think of killing deer, whether it's accidents, whether it's getting hit by cars or bullets or arrows, all those things are exacerbated. They occur earlier in life with the CWD positive deer. With regard to what's going on in North Dakota, I think, you know, Charlie's, you know, got his finger on the pulse of what's going on there. It seems to be a little slower moving system though, doesn't it, Charlie? Yeah, it it does. We kind of, um, you know, we're almost sort of a microcosm. We, we had a, a local area where, um, in the South, basically along our central Southern border, uh, with, with South Dakota where, um, you know, first detected in, in 2009 and, um, you know, test a, a few hundred deer in that area ever since. And for a number of years, it was, uh, just one or we'd pick up one or two positives out of that relatively same sample size. Um, the last couple of years, it does seem to have picked up a little bit, um, which is, you know, consistent with what we see with, uh, you know, how this disease spreads in, in populations. Um, we also are, are, pretty darn similar to Montana in that our Northwest uh, portion of our state, um, you know, in 2018, we started finding positives up in the Northwest, kind of continuous with your Montana Highline where, you know, uh, mule deer bucks primarily are showing up positive. Um, And if you look at the North American distribution map that Brian maintains, um, you know, it's a pretty, pretty easy to assume that, uh, we are seeing expansion from that, uh, you know, real hot spot in, in Saskatchewan, you know, it's just kind of slowly migrating out of there. Um, which again, is just very consistent with, um, you know, how we understand this disease to work. So, um, so yeah, you know, and I don't know if we're ready to transition to it or not, but I think, um, Part of the challenge, I guess, with with CWD in general is that uh, you know if you're not if you're not in one of those colored counties on on Brian's map, it's just so tempting to just kind of write it off as, huh, that's sort of ha- head scratching, you know, interesting, uh, you know. So what? Move on. Um, but then when it does show up in your um, in your lap or in your area where you hunt, it kind of forces, um, some pretty hard decisions, you know, and, um, and all of a sudden, all of a sudden there's some pretty serious implications, uh, you know, that you're kind of forced to consider if you're serious about, um, you know, responding to the, the long-term implications that this disease presents. Um, you know, and man, I'm, I'm with every other hunter in North Dakota. It's very tempting to just, uh, say, huh, so what? And keep on going. But, you know, it's, it's not my job to do that. And, and more importantly, um, you know, as a pretty vested hunter in North Dakota, it's, it's kind of not responsible for me to, to ignore that. So that's where we find ourselves is in this kind of, uh, position, you know, um, so anyway, maybe already went on a rant there. How many positives did you say you have, Charlie, this last year? Um, in, in 2021, we, our surveillance from this past year is still kind of working out, but last year in 2021, we had 26 positives. Um, and we, we really don't sample a a huge portion of our harvested animals. So, you know, obviously how many positives you come up with is a 
product of how many you test, but um, two different units are South Central Area. Um, unit 3F2 is what we call it. About 5% of mule deer are, are infected. And then our, our far Northwest corner, 3A1, um, it was kind of that same 6 to 7% of mule deer uh, were infected. Well, compare, contrast a little bit back, you know, when we started initially detected CWD in Wisconsin, you know, the first year found about 200 positives, right? The last five years in a row, we've had over a thousand positives each year. And that's less than 20% of successful hunters who are getting their deer sampled. So the, the concept there, and we've seen it time and time and time again, it may seem like it's not growing, like it's not spreading, but it likely is. And, yeah. you know, the diseases and you know, grow on, on exponential growth curves. And exponential growth curves look awful flat for a really long time. I remember some of the research, mm. you know, we did back, you know, here in the state of Wisconsin, yeah, with their early data from, you know, 2002 up to 2008, 2009. And when you looked at the data, that curve looked every bit flat right up until it didn't. And then it started shooting <laughs> upwards like exponential growth curves do. And, you know, so, wow, I think it's great that, you know, disease seems to be a very slow-moving phenomena in, in North Dakota and some of the other states where it's likely newer uh, than it is in other places. I guess I wouldn't count on that being the, the it staying that way into the long term. Yeah, and that, that gets to an issue here in Montana, and I've talked to some of the uh, agency folks, uh, both federal and state agency folks, about how did Montana end up with such a high prevalence rate just right out of the gate in some of the areas we started testing? How How could the disease move here that quickly? And they said, well, <laughs> it's not necessarily moving that quickly. It's been there. And the incidence or the prevalence increases because testing has increased. And there are some people in the hunting community I talk to who they don't want more testing because the old, you know, Charlie, you said, wouldn't it be nice if we could just ignore this? But ignorance being bliss might work in some parts of our life but it's it seems that the hunting community <laughs> we don't want any more bad news so there's times we try to suppress testing uh which gets me to the point of the numbers that you guys are citing do you have any places that are mandatory testing or is this just all voluntary testing in wisconsin testing is is voluntary um it's promoted like I said, I think the even in the, the highest uh, prevalence and you know highest hit areas of the state, uh, it's probably between one out of four and one out of five hunters actually get their deer tested. Then, based on a on a recent um, um, social science or human dimensions survey that Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources conducted, even when hunters are apprised that the deer that they you know, had, you know, harvested and got tested, they get the positive results back. The most frequent response back to the survey folks is that hunters decide to consume that anyway, you know, despite it being positive. And, and while that's an individual choice, we all make individual choices, informed choices. 
it's uh, diametrically opposed to what the Centers for Disease Control and the World Health Organization suggest. I mean, they don't they don't mince words. It's positive for mm-hmm. prion disease, a transmissible spongiform encephalopathy like CWD. Their guidance is pretty uniform. Don't eat it, but people yeah. do, do choose to. Hmm. I can say, um, you know, in in North Dakota, uh, we we've always just followed a um, a voluntary format. Um, you know, generally some states do do mandatory, and um, and that does yield a lot more data. But um, for a number of reasons, we've always done voluntary, um, and unfortunately, it you know. The highest we send, we tend to see is, uh, you know, ten to twelve percent of license holders in some units uh, might submit samples, but a lot of times it's more like five percent or so. Um, but you know, I guess, and I, I don't mean to try to pivot the conversation, but I will say that, um, you know, sometimes, uh, and I think Brian would maybe agree with this. Sometimes I think. Uh, there is a lot of focus on testing that kind of misplaces a little bit of emphasis. So, you know, I mm-hmm. always try to very be very clear that, um, you know, that surveillance helps us identify the problem, but that's not management. You know, management kind of is what we talk about with these other things. So, so sometimes people, you know, um, will talk about CWD and they'll say, well, you know, if we, let's just test more, let's throw more money at, at, uh, testing animals. And, and it is really important to know where the disease is, but, but that doesn't make, that doesn't move the bar at all in terms of, uh, you know, the effect of disease out there. So, Surveillance is important, but management is kind of what a lot of the the crux of the discussion falls on. Absolutely. Surveillance, especially those places where you do mandatory surveillance, it helps us get a better idea of how disease is performing on the ground. And it does give individual hunters, their spouses, their families, better information to make that personal decision. But um, a good friend of mine in the... uh, uh, emergency management world. It's got a, a, a saying, and, and I've never been able to attribute the quote, but it goes like this. It, it says, surveillance without action is merely quantifying misery. Hunt Talk Radio is brought to you by Go Hunt Insider. Go to GoHunt.com to get the best information available to the self-guided hunter. The best draw odds, strategy articles, e-scouting tools, maps that you can use online and out in the field, and you get points in the best gear shop in the industry. Sign up for Insider using promo code Randy, and they're going to give you $50 of credit in the GoHunt gear shop. Go to GoHunt.com, sign up now, promo code Randy, $50 of store credit. Nosler Ammunition is the official ammunition of Hunt Talk Radio and every other platform that we produce. Nosler was founded in 1948 by John Nosler, and over that time, Nosler Ammunition has proven time and again why so many hunters and shooters trust Nosler. Whether it's Nosler bullets, components, or their premium-grade ammunition, Nosler's reputation at quality shines through. We shoot exclusively Nosler E-tips, Acubons, and partitions in all of our rifles. And all of those can be found at Nosler.com or look for them at fine retailers near you. (laughs) (laughs) It really is. I mean... 
We make these fantastic maps where we document disease. We do it for chronic wasting disease. We do it for highly pathogenic avian influenza. But our toolkit for some of these things is limited. And even when we do have tools, and I will argue that we do have some tools that you'll have the propensity to be effective with, with chronic wasting disease, but they're not popular, right? So yeah. a lot of, you know, we think about, we put it in the human, you know, disease world. And, and just because you don't like the flavor of the medicine doesn't mean that that medicine wouldn't work. But it does yeah. suggest that if you don't take the medicine, you might just get sicker or you might not get better. Right? Yeah, that's, I think that's where we're going to end up in, in this discussion. And I, I don't want to misplace emphasis, like Charlie said. I want, I want to jump into some of this stuff. And I talked to the Colorado folks how some of the things that they're doing and trying to manage the disease uh, and how there, there's a fine line of how do you keep the trust of hunters? How, how do you get you know, in states with a lot of private land? How do you get the buy-in from private landowners? Because if one part, say you have a unit where you have a highway, let's just imagine a highway driving right down north and south. So you got an east side of your unit, a west side of your unit. You, you might have the people on the east side all bought in. All right. Yeah. Or maybe it's public land where you have a little more ability to do that. And maybe the other side, you don't have a lot of buy-in or maybe it's private land where you really can't control outcomes. Um, talking to them, they they made it very clear some of these challenges are getting hunters to trust some of these management suggestions because a lot of them as you said brian aren't necessarily what we want to hear we may not like the taste of the medicine to use your term and that doesn't necessarily mean <laughs> we we ignore what that is because you, you know it, some of the critics of the science work and, and of what you guys do, they say, oh, you don't have science. You don't know this. You don't know that. You know, they're, they're making this up. When you just said, Brian, that we do know some management prescriptions, we, we do know some information, but maybe it's just, you know, not the good tasting medicine. What are some of those things that you guys have learned in this process that are going to have to be part of the package of treatment? for this disease. Charlie, you want to take a swing? <laughs> uh, <laughs> you bet. Uh, you're asking, do I want to deal with the bad taste in medicine first? I'm happy to, yeah. Um, yeah, you know, there. so there are just exa echoing exactly what Brian said. There are a number of uh, tools that we in ma we as managers have, and and most of them are are kind of kind of blunt instruments. But um, you know, of course, one is uh, and I would also say some of them, uh, you know, are based around understanding how this disease works as far as transmission, and then trying to curtail those. You know, identifying. Um, how the disease works as far as transmission and what sort of behaviors emulate those risky things. So, um, you know, I can say that in, in North Dakota, we have sort of three main, uh, you know, crude hammers that we swing. Um, one is, uh, 
influencing the movement of, of carcass waste. Um, and so, you know, we know that CWD is really highly concentrated in portions of the carcass, the brain and spinal column. And so there's, you know, restrictions in place for bringing animals into our state. Um, you know, certain high-risk carcass parts can't come into the state. Um, also within state movement is, um, there's some rules around that. Uh, we also know that, uh, you know, harvest management, especially in Western states, there's some really promising work that kind of, um, you know, kind of illustrates what we've kind of understood about the disease for quite a while, which is that, um, you know, by a by, by applying harvest an- management kind of in the segment of the population that's most at risk. So in Western states, it tends to be uh, mature, mature bucks. So by, um, you know, really focusing, uh, sustained and strong enough pressure on that demographic, um, you can suppress how fast this disease grows. And so, you know, where we have CWD based off of infection rates, we allocate uh, some licenses around that. Um, And then thirdly, um, we also restrict baiting where we've detected the disease. Um, You know, we know that baiting uh, brings in a lot of unrelated animals and, and, uh, and, creates uh, contact among those animals and indirect contact with their bodily fluids. And so, um, you know, those are things that are well documented as, as uh, leading to the transmission of the disease. Um, and so, uh, so that's something that we restrict where we have the disease. Of course, that's a pretty hot topic, but, or hot topic issue in, in North Dakota. Um, you know, I'll say that, uh, um, a, a, th- Maybe a fourth tool that I'll kick it over to Brian to talk about, should he wish, uh, that's been implemented in in eastern states that have much higher deer densities is um, some pretty some pretty intense uh, deer removal. You know, first with the use of of hunters, but then even agency removal of deer. Um, you know that's been used uh, effectively in some cases in, in Eastern states for the most part in Western states. Um, you know, we, or I guess in North Dakota where our deer density is already quite a lot lower. Uh, we haven't seen a, we haven't, that's a lever that we haven't pulled yet for a lot of reasons, but that's not mm-hmm. to throw, uh, you know, other states under the bus. Yeah. Yeah. Are I'd those like the to... four, Brian, you, you, oh, had, go you got five, six or seven, Brian, that you would add to that? Yeah. First, though, I'd like to back up or go higher in the air into some very, yeah. very basic disease management, you know, philosophy. And this could be human disease, could be domestic animal disease, it could be wildlife disease. Kind of three part: prevention, prevention, mm-hmm. prevention is the first part. So the best thing you can do with <laughs> disease is not get it right. And certainly there's a lot of states um, that don't have CWD or haven't found it yet. They're doing everything they can to keep it that way because they've watched what, you know, Wisconsin and Colorado and Wyoming have been doing, and they don't want to join that. So prevention's key. Then the next thing, if you do have disease, you identify disease, you want to do your best to keep it where it is. Try to do everything you can not to inadvertently move it. And so that's where you get, you know, like the carcass movement restrictions, putting zones in, you know, um, maybe, you know, carcass management philosophy besides, you know, moving them. Keep disease Mm -hmm. where it is. But the third one is managing disease, right? Doing things which hopefully will help tamp down disease either in the short, medium, or long term. Because with an infectious disease like chronic wasting disease, 
as we've seen time and time again, just leaving it alone, letting it fester and cook on its own, it doesn't tend to go away. It tends to spread out of those zones and it tends to increase in prevalence. So that's where some of these other um, you know, harvest management techniques you know, kick in. And you know, other ones, trying to do things that reduce the odds for disease to, to percolate up on its own. And that's it. You know, the, one of there is the, is the artificial aggregations of deer. That comes into the yeah. feeding and baiting and you know, other inadvertent sites, whether it's a, a leaking grain silo that might have 50 mule deer standing around it or things like that. Anything, any place, anytime we can reduce the chances of animals spending more time together, it reduces the chances that they're going to, you know, transmit disease to one another. Um, Charlie yeah. keyed in really well, you know, on the harvest dynamics, you know, targeting that portion of the population most likely to have CWD. So that comes back, if you, if you have a disease issue, it makes sense to focus your treatment on the sick ones, right? Yeah. But with a disease like chronic wasting disease, we can't just look at a deer out in the field and, and determine whether it has CWD or not. Now, I've always said if they turned pink or orange when they got CWD, we would have had this <laughs> under control a long time ago, but they don't. Yeah. So we have to use what we know about disease. And we know from testing over you know decades that adult males are the movers and shakers, the ones most likely to be positive. So where we can't identify which ones are positive, we play that odds game. And, and there's, there's numerous you know, places now, places like Colorado, that suggest if you do that, you can alter disease outcomes. It's not going to be quick. It's not going to be easy. But you can alter disease outcomes if you, if you focus on these. And, and Charlie's right. Um, you know, focused culling, sharpshooting, uh, whatever you want to call it, looks like it can have promise. But again, it's, it's it really, it's doing the same thing. You're trying to focus on areas where you know you have an aggregation of positives, uh, focusing on you know, opportunities where disease exists to try and eliminate more carriers of disease. So all these, whatever yeah. you want to call them, they're all kind of geared towards, you know, those very basic principles of addressing disease where it exists, keeping it from moving, and prevention. Yeah. Well, that's... We should, we should I, mention we to be... Um, we should, should mention um, there's a group called the Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies, AFWA for short. Yeah, AFWA. And all 50 yeah. states are members, including South Dakota, North Dakota, Wisconsin, Montana. All of them are, are members of, of the association. And a few years ago, AFWA put out a, a document called Best Management Practices, or BMPs yeah. for Chronic Wasting Disease, and this is thought of as, you know, this is the brain power, the wildlife health brain power of the states and the provinces put together, contributed to this document. It's available online. Anybody can go look at it. So it's not like Charlie and Brian are making this stuff up. This <laughs> no. is built on decades and, you know, collective centuries of experience with infectious diseases, epide epidemiological principles hard science to put together some of these management guidelines and lays it right out, you know, managing CWD prevalence once you have it. You know, things like 
targeting the portion of the population most likely to have CWD, targeting animals in known CWD hotspots, adjusting timing of your seasons to most effectively remove infected animals. Gee, when would that be? You know, might be the rut when those adult males yeah. are much more vulnerable. Reducing cervid density, eliminating practices that promote artificial concentrations, restricting or prohibiting movement of intact carcasses and high-risk materials. Those exact things we've been talking about. So said it's not like we're making it up. This is this is sound guidance based on on collective centuries of experience. And anybody listening, I would suggest you go out to the website, Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies, AFWA, the acronym, how we call it. I, I've read that multiple times. I, I went over it again prior to our podcast here. And it's, it's very well put together. And it, it kind of leads us to the paths of things that we're talking about right now as prescriptions for managing this disease. Uh, of the four you talked about, Charlie, the one probably least used that I'm aware of is probably your fourth one that you threw out there is intense local removal, uh, whatever, you know, sharpshooters, however you want to call it. I think the agencies in the last three or four years have really done a good job on the transport rules and making uh, hunters more aware we got a long ways to go with that because every year i see somebody come wheeling into montana to show me a buck they shot in wyoming or colorado and the the skull is still into everything's still there i'm like whoa 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 you can't be doing this but well, what do you mean so we got an education level that an awareness factor we got we still got to work on for that uh the other two um become probably more controversial and that is where we focus you know our harvest management uh because when you have people who either dream about shooting a six-year-old buck or they have businesses built around stockpiling if you want to call it that and and harvesting five plus year old bucks uh that ends up with a lot of uh a lot of controversy. And the, the the one that I struggle with to see why it's so controversial, and maybe it's just because of where I live, uh, we're, we're dealing with a, a parallel disease uh, called brucellosis. And it's a big concern in our livestock industry. Uh, anyone who follows our podcast knows we've had a lot of discussions about brucellosis. And one of the big issues there is separation. Okay, how do you stop or prevent artificial accumulations of mostly elk in this case? Because all of the Montana uh, uh, positives for brucellosis have come. The vector has been determined to be elk. In Montana, we don't have feed grounds. Wyoming does. And so I always look, when, I, when I'm talk, thinking about the CWD context, I go to brucellosis and say, okay, they're different, but management of disease protocols are pretty similar and in wyoming on their feed grounds their prevalence rate of brucellosis compared to off their feed grounds is off the charts and what do you have in feed grounds you have some pretty intense accumulations of species but yeah they, and they know that so wyoming tries to disperse the hay or the alfalfa or, you know the pellets of how they do it and everything uh 
but some would say, well, that's no different than baiting. Uh, I don't know if it is. I, I don't live in a state where baiting is legal. Uh, so I don't really know. But you start talking about those kind of things where people have used for a hunting technique, baiting, or, you know, some other artificial attraction uh, and accumulation. Sometimes they do it for photography. Uh, mostly they use it for hunting. And all of a sudden you get a lot of people who are like, I don't want to change my ways or I have a financial vested interest in this. And that's when policy sometimes makes science hard, hard to listen to. Uh, so uh, I, I'd like to focus more on points two and three with you guys. Uh, you know, when we talk about harvest focus, we are talking about mature bucks, right? And to what degree? You know, do you go and shoot every mature buck? Do you? Is there some number that's kind of like, okay, here's the threshold. If we get down to this, we can keep prevalence within some reasonable number. Is it? I know there's a lot. All of all of this is going on, and all, all you guys, always, every one of you in your type of positions, tell me, well, we want to be honest with what we know, and we want to be honest with what we don't know. Um, so there's always stuff we don't know. Uh, Brian, what did you say before we got on the online uh, when I said uh, about what we don't know? He said something uh, about knowing everything. You know, how do we know? Yeah, is there, is there a disease that we know everything about? Because if there is, I'd sure like to know what that one is. I mean, that's why we continue to do research. Um, yeah. Yeah. So well. and, and along that same lines, I mean, um, you know, if you use that excuse to not proceed in managing diseases, whether it's human health or animal, you know, you could use that same excuse and, um, and not do anything, you know, because we don't have 100% understanding, let's just pause and not do anything about it. I mean, that's just not how we work. That's not how... Um, you know, how we respond to phenomenon. We, we take our best understanding. We take kind of what direction is the bulk of scientific understanding point us to and, and respond accordingly. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> well, with that then, let's, let's just touch uh, on harvest management. Is, it, is that possible to, is that just a function of season setting, season dates? You'd refer to that, Brian. Yeah. Uh, because these are the things you, you read about, you hear hunters say, oh, they just want to kill every deer. They just want to get rid of all the bucks. Or they're, they need buck-to-doe ratios at a certain level, so blah, blah, blah. You know, you, this is where I hear resistance from hunters. Absolutely. I, I don't know precisely, but I'll bet you that a substantial portion of Charlie's salary and benefits comes directly from Hunter's license sales, just like everybody that works for his agency. Um, yep. That is, you know, hunting license revenue is, is, is a driver for management of not only deer in North Dakota, but all other species out there. I also suggest that Charlie and his agency would rather be spending that hunting license revenue on things other than chronic wasting disease because many <laughs> you know, state agencies have detoured, had it done a hard detour away from other activities due to fiscal and other resources available like him and, you know, the, the number of people you have out there. Um, couple, couple points. All right. So, yeah, everybody wants to kill that, you know, five to eight-year-old male, right? So, do a little math game for you. You have a, an always yeah. fatal infectious disease of, of deer, elk, 
moose, caribou, and the the average incubation period for that disease is someplace around two years. So for, for simplicity, okay. we can say that half of your positive deer are going to die this year, and the other half are going to die next year. Okay? Ballpark. Okay. So simplicity, now, yep. For- yeah. So now take a place like, yeah, where, you know, I talk about, you know, Iowa County, Richland County here in Wisconsin, where adult male prevalence by the time they're two and a half is 40%. When they're a year and a half, when they're 18 months old, it's already over 20%. So you got 20% of your yearling bucks have CWD. Half of them are going to die in the next year. Half are going to die the year after that. By the time they're two and a half, prevalence is 40%. Half of them die, half of them die. Three and a half, 40%. Four and a half, 40%. Probably by five and a half, they're probably looking up at 50%. So at the end of the day, yeah, how many six to eight year old or five to eight year old males are you going to be able to push through in the face of that level of disease penetrance? The answer close to not zero. as many. Not as many. Not as many yeah. as you would otherwise. So, you know, sure you can do the the math and you can model it out, but there are locations now in North America where, you know, it's it's shown pretty, pretty conclusively that you're just not pushing those age classes through anymore. Um, come back here to you know my home state of Wisconsin, and CWD was just detected for the first time in Buffalo County. Now, Buffalo County is you know really the home of Boone and Crockett you know animals, and I'm reading about um, some outfitters who you know um, it's their business. They lease up private land and then lease out the opportunity to hunt. And a couple of these have identified that you know they're you know they want to start hunting maybe every other year. And that's to give the opportunity to push more males through into those older age classes. Well, that mm-hmm. business model, if CWD progresses in Buffalo County like it has in multiple other locations, and it'll take a while, won't be overnight, but down the road when you get into that area where you know, you've got adult male prevalence in the 40 to 50% range, that business model is simply not going to work. You're, you're just not going to push as many of those males into those older age classes. So there are some consequences to leaving this you know, disease out there you know, for that protracted period. Now, as far as how much do you have to push, uh, we've got a, a really, really cool project going on. National Wildlife Health Center, we've contracted with this group called Ventana, V-E-N-T-A-N-A Incorporated, and they're tremendous modelers. And we've done this project in in concert with the Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources. And so the idea is is what we refer to as a systems model, where we're trying to look at CWD beyond just the epidemiology, the nuts and bolts of how many deer are infected at what point in time, but also building in social, political, economic, and landscape level constraints so we can better capture the complexity of the system, you know, that deer and CWD are part of. And I think it's really, really compelling work, really interesting. So some preliminary results and this is after backfitting, you know, a good 20 years of Wisconsin data into the model, suggests that unabated CWD is growing at about 25% per year. And that's not news. I mean, we've, we've known that for some time. That's kind of the growth rate you anticipate. I wish my, I wish my retirement account was growing at 25% <laughs> per year. Doesn't seem to be. 
But the other thing we can do is we can flip switches or sliders in this model. So we can implement all of these management protocols that you know, we've been talking about. And then we can run that population out through time to, to map the, the potential impacts of what those management protocols look like. Here's a key one. We'd have to, in order to arrest growth, we'd have to reduce transmission by between 50 and 80%. That's an astounding number. So if we think about, all right, so if we've got four adult male deer standing out in the pasture in front of us, each one has CWD, and in front of each one is, let's say for, for simplicity, is an adult female deer that doesn't have CWD. So yeah. in order to arrest growth, we have to stop between two and three out of four of those animals from transmitting to another deer. That's hmm. pretty substantial, you know, pretty hardcore. Yeah. But that's the reality. That's, that's what the science says. Now, you know, that's not popular, but in order no. to alter disease outcomes, I think we've known for a long time um, yeah, you've got to hit fast, you've got to hit hard, and you've got to keep on hitting. You alluded to it before. If, if this was simple, we would have fixed this decades ago. It's not simple, yeah. and it's not easy. Well, I'm sure some people just heard those numbers that you gave, Brian, and they're like, uh-oh, I'm not a, a modeling expert, but simple math tells me we to control this disease, there's going to be changes to my dream of, oh, I'd like to have 40 bucks per hundred does post-harvest, and I'd like 25% of those to be four and a half or older. Based on what Colorado told me the other day, that kind of model, this you're going to lose those bucks anyhow because CWD prevalence is going to get so high that you can wish for that, but it's not going to happen. And so we're... As much as we might dislike some of the treatment options, uh, the the outcome of going the other direction, and there's enough research out there and data to tell us where that path goes to. Well, we think about the consequences, long-term consequences. So I mentioned, you know, fiscal impacts, you know, to Charlie's agency goes beyond, you know, fiscal impacts. I think there's, you know, collateral damage to, you know, agency reputation. Um, you know, the states that have been dealing with CWD the longest, stakeholder trust is just not where it was, you know, a couple decades ago. We have seen, you know, what I refer to as, as, as population impacts. And, and, and we got to be careful when we talk about population level impacts, you know, Population decline is an extreme impact, but we have this concept called harvestable surplus, and it's what, you know, Charlie's agency issues tags every year out there that allow hunters to take that harvestable surplus without hurting the population. CWD, right. initially, these population impacts, will see that the, the harvestable surplus diminish over time, so they just won't be as many out there. Um, demographic shifts to herd structure, you know, again, where, you know, yeah. older males, older females as well, you're just not going to have these older aged animals. Another one that I think is really interesting is, is hunter behavior. And so there's numerous, you mm -hmm. know, 
um, you know, human dimension surveys that have been completed that suggest that in the, high, in the face of high prevalence, when prevalence gets up in that 30, 40, 50, Saskatchewan, 70% range, our behavior and participation are going to change. That, you yep. know, after you've killed your, your fourth CWD positive deer in five years, you just might think, man, I should go hunting elsewhere. Or, worst case, this isn't even fun anymore. I'm just going to hang it up. There's yeah. also now hints in some of these locations where CWD has been the longest and prevalence is relatively high, uh, that land valuation changes may be occurring. Um, most of that is anecdotal information right now, uh, but there's a lot of places where people you know, bought you know, they're 40 or they're 640 or whatever the case may be, predominantly as a recreational area, and they want to hunt mm-hmm. and they want to hunt deer. And as CWD penetrates in, you know, high prevalence and you start once in a while seeing a sick deer and you're no longer pushing deer through into the, you know, three and a half, four and a half year old age classes, is that what you're, is that what you're paying that mortgage and paying the taxes for? Um, yeah, there's, there's, there's all kinds of, of long-term consequences. And so I regularly hear, just leave it alone. Yeah, if we don't test, we yeah. won't find it, and everything will be just fine. But the data across North America just don't reinforce that. They reinforce that this disease is constantly moving. It's, it's spreading, it's growing, it's killing deer, it's predisposing others to an early demise. So, you know, the ignorance is bliss, probably works up to a point, you know, and then yeah. karma comes back and bites you in the posterior, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, I, I think you've done a good job there, Brian, of, of kind of explaining that we can wish for a different reality, okay? We could wish that we don't have to deal with this, that agencies like Charlie's don't have to spend so much resource, both money and time and personnel on these issues. But that's the, we can wish all we want. That's not our reality. And sometimes realities require hard decisions. And uh, so the, the, I'm, I'm wanting the audience to understand that maybe there are no painless decisions. But hopefully some, the pain is worth the outcome if we do a better, you know, there's a rate, if you want to call it a ratio of the amount of pain to the amount of benefit in the long term. And uh, yeah, the one that has no pain by doing nothing has a serious long term outcome that we're not going to want. So uh, I want to pivot a little bit and charlie i i don't want to put you on the hot seat here but (laughs) this issue has really expressed or manifested whatever you want to call it in north dakota in just the last month uh we have I, i i i read about it i hear about it that you guys in north dakota right now you allow baiting i believe you're one of the few states that do i know we don't in montana i don't think minnesota i think minnesota got rid of it so i'm thinking of who borders north dakota uh does south dakota allow baiting no they don't so uh and this isn't for me this is not an expression of 
should you bait or should you not bait from, you know, a lot of people want to frame it as an ethical or, you know, hunter behavior kind of debate. To me, this is purely what does the science tell us about a disease that is impacting the landscape? Long-term could have some of the impacts that Brian mentioned of maybe even hunters just saying, you know what, I'm done. And uh, that's a huge consequence. So uh, there's an effort afoot in your state to take away... (laughs) The right of your agency, and, and tell me if I got this wrong. I went and read a draft of the bill. I think it's House Bill 1151 or something like that, where it, it's it's actually pretty simply written. It says, uh, whatever code section of the Mon- uh, North Dakota Code this is, it says, uh, baiting for deer not prohibited. And in one sentence, the bill is really one sentence. The department may not issue rules or adopt a policy or practice prohibiting the baiting of deer for lawful hunting. That's, that, that, I guess this is to talk about how far this discussion goes, how some people are reacting, responding to what are just really normal protocols for disease management. You know, don't accumulate or concentrate wild animals unnaturally. And that's that's why I'm really interested. And I don't want to put you on the hot spot, Charlie, but uh, is it, you think that that is, I mean, <laughs> I'm trying to say it so I don't set you up for failure here or uh, bring, bring the heat down on you. But I, I'm just surprised that a state like North Dakota is willing to go and take away management tools from an agency when we have so much data that says these are the risks. These, This is the reality we're facing. And yet we have parties in the hunting community supporting that bill. It's, it's going to take one tool away from you, it seems like. Yeah, yeah I mean, I, uh, I'm kind of already in the old hot seat there. Um, you know, having... <laughs> <laughs> I haven't been kind of immersed in the issue for a while now. I guess what I'll what I'll say, Randy, and I'm, um, you know, uh, obviously our our department is uh, kind of in the throes of this quote unquote conversation at the moment. Um, you know, I, I guess what I would first say is is I am a bit empathetic to um, to guys who baiting has been a part of their hunting tradition for years now. You know, yeah. like that's. I think all three of us here are hunters and we can kind of, uh, empathize with, um, you know, being strongly asked or even required to change something that's kind of fundamental to how we do it. So I, I can kind of, I can empathize with that. Um, but I would also just say that, um, you know, our department, um, is tasked with responding to very well-documented threats like CWD. And in one major tool that we have that's, you know, well-established uh, tool, well, well-supported by, by evidence is the spading restriction. And, um, and we've had a lot of, a lot of conversations, you know, we get a lot of folks, a lot of our uh, hunting public that says, look, you know what you know about CWD and, and other diseases. Why don't you go to a statewide restriction right now? Um, and then we also have folks that, um, you know, do express their, um, the fact that they enjoy baiting. And so we kind of tried to dance this middle line where, where we've got CWD, we restrict the practice and, um, you know, in areas that are so far have yet to, 
you know, find CWD, we, we can kind of justify letting that, that risk persist. Um, so I guess we've kind of already tried to, um, you know, respect both the biology and the, the public's desire, um, you know, I mean, I'll say on, on what I perceive to be, unfortunately, um, you know, a number of folks that, um, you know, are not happy with where, where we stand on the issue of, um, you know, build up some momentum and are, are trying to basically take that lever out of our hands. And, um, you know, I guess I, as a veterinarian charged with protecting the, you know, the long-term health of our population, you know, would, <laughs> would disagree with that decision. Um, yeah. you know, it, Traditionally, um, you know, wildlife management in North Dakota fundamentally is, uh, you know, there's some kind of fundamental concepts, what we call our model of North American wildlife conservation. I maybe <laughs> yeah. just, maybe just mess that up, but, um, you know, one is that uh, wildlife, no matter where it is, whether it's on my land or your land, it belongs to everybody, you know, both us as hunters, but also, you know, just those who enjoy knowing that healthy wildlife is out there. So it's a public trust. Um, and then another pretty f core fundamental is that, um, you know, it's managed with an evidence-based approach, um, you know, hopefully mostly free of politics, you know, guided by science. Um, you know, that, that model is kind of celebrated as, as having been largely responsible for recovery of wildlife in the last 80 years or so. And, um, you know, unfortunately, that kind of forces hard decisions to be made. It, it kind of asks folks to, um, you know, sometimes change their behavior uh, when new threats come. And, and ultimately, that kind of leaves a bad taste in folks' mouth. Um, so we're, we're kind of right in the middle of, um, you know, again, quote unquote, a conversation in North Dakota about how we want the future of uh, decisions like this to be made. Yeah, well, that North American model uh, one of the, they call them the seven sisters or one of the tenets is science, scientific management of wildlife. And I'm reading this <clears throat> right from the, uh, guys who wrote it, uh, or put it, accumulated it, Dr. Geist, uh, Shane Mahoney and, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, uh, and, and it's, accumulated out there and it, it flat out says you know the best science available will be used as a base for informed decision making and wildlife management it's important to note that management objectives are developed to support to support the species not the individual animals and i would add to that not to support necessarily the outcome that i want you know as a hunter that that is beneficial to me uh so for me i I, I want my audience to think about, do we really want to start taking tools away from Charlie and Brian and our other wildlife managers? Because we are telling you it's your responsibility to control this disease. You need to be the person out there doing this. There's a lot of consequences that come with not just, in, in this case, baiting, but taking any tools away from you. and then all of a sudden getting away from science as the basis for management to being politics <laughs> as a basis for management, we don't have to think too far of what a train wreck that would be for wildlife. And I think for the future of hunting, if all of a sudden we make this more of a political discussion and less of a science discussion. 
And we, so, we've I'm, seen this before. Um, we have a limited toolbox. So taking that toolbox and dumping it upside down doesn't really make a lot of sense. The Hunt Talk Radio podcast is brought to you by Mystery Ranch Backpacks. For years, I've been using Mystery Ranch Packs. It might be the Metcalf or the Beartooth, the Sawtooth or the Pintler. No matter which Mystery Ranch Pack you choose, here's how you can save 10% on your purchase. Go to the Go Hunt Gear Shop, GoHunt.com, put a Mystery Ranch Pack in your cart, and when you check out using promo code RANDY, you're going to save 10% off that pack and most of the other regular priced items in your cart. Mr. Ranch backpacks. Can't beat them. Go check them out. Hunt Talk Radio is brought to you by Outdoor Class. Outdoor Class is an online learning platform that includes access to courses from some of hunting's most trusted experts. You'll find courses by my buddy Corey Jacobson, Remy Warren, me, Hank Shaw, John Barklow, Jamie Teagan, and the list is growing and growing. And here's the other cool part. My buddy Corey, who founded the University of Elk Hunting course, the popular course that is everything known about elk hunting, his course is now part of your subscription to Outdoor Class. So, all for one subscription, at one price, you get all of the Outdoor Class courses, plus Corey's University of Elk Hunting. Go to OutdoorClass.com, use promo code RANDY when you sign up, and you're going to save 20%. This will be great information for any hunter. Hunt Talk Radio is brought to you by Outdoor Class, an online learning platform that includes access to courses from some of hunting's most trusted experts. Outdoor Class now includes the University of Elk Hunting course from my buddy Corey Jacobson. All these courses in one single subscription at one price. Go to OutdoorClass.com and use promo code RANDY to save 20% when you sign up. This is great information for any hunter at any level. Um, and, and yeah, putting you know, several things, you know, draw, draw close to home here where um, stakeholders, you know, sometimes a minority of very vocal, you know, hunters and landowners um, can push the envelope and, and get um, legislative action. You know, I had an example in my home state back in 2011. You know, maybe one of the most effective tools the Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources ever had for reducing deer population density was a tool called Earn a Buck. Right? And mm. so under Earn a Buck, you had to shoot a doe and present it at a check station before you could shoot a buck. And okay. so... This was about as popular as a lead balloon. And we never knew prior <laughs> to that how many hunters saw a 180-inch Boone and Crockett deer on, at 6.30 on opening day and were forced to not shoot that deer because they had to shoot a doe first, right? But anyway, the, you know, it was, it was, very, it was a, an effective tool. You know, used well before CWD hmm. to manage populations in when, when deer densities got out of hand. When it was used as well in CWD zones was completely unpopular, and the legislature took that tool out of the toolkit from for the Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources. 
So there's other really? examples out there. The other thing I want to hit on, you know, I regularly hear, well, there's no science that, that proves that baiting or feeding, you know, is bad. And, and so I'll agree. We don't have a single study where we've taken, let's say, 100,000 acres, high-fenced it, and then divided it into two equal-sized pastures, had the exact same deer density on either side of the fence, introduced CWD into both sides of the fence, let it cook for about 10, 15 years, and, and on one side allow baiting and feeding, and on the other side don't allow baiting to feeding to see what the outcome would be. Nope, haven't done that study, and if you've got an extra, you know, couple, you know, millions and millions of dollars, we could start on it, right? <laughs> so sometimes we have to use scientific inference. And so we've got the building blocks, right? We know that CWD positive deer are shedding prions in their saliva, in their feces, in their urine. And we know that, you know, when they're shedding these prions out into the environment, they can bind to surfaces, they can bind to soil particles, they can bind to plants. I would assume they can bind to kernels of corn, right? And in that bound state, they can persist for years to decades. And when a healthy, naive, susceptible deer consumes, you know, those prions, those infectious prions out in the environment, that can cause infection in that individual deer. So, and when it's it, CWD, we think of, of, of transmission from deer A to deer B, either being direct transmission, where deer A directly gives disease to deer B, maybe during yeah. you know, reproductive activities or grooming. The other one is indirect, where these prions are shed by one deer. They persist in the environment, and then they're uptaken. They're inhaled or ingested by another deer. So think about what happens at that baiting site. Most of these baiting sites are persistent through time. They're used year in, year out, or mineral licks are used year in and year out. So if every single deer out there in the landscape is healthy, no problem. But let's add a little CWD to the mix. And now we've got animals shedding that infectious prion protein at a concentrated location designed to bring other deer into that same space, either now or in the future. Well, that's likely going to increase the transmission risk at those individual sites. Now, we've also got you know, some you know, peer-reviewed science. You know, Mike Samuels, Samuel is a dear friend of mine, retired now from UW-Madison, where he definitively showed that prions are concentrated or you can detect prions at mineral licks here in the state of Wisconsin in CWD zones. Really? So it's there. There's another research group now that's using a, a newer type of test and redoing some of that work at baiting sites in, that, in Tennessee in that real high prevalence area. Um, in in the west southwestern corner of the state, it's too early. Their results I haven't seen any of their preliminary results come back yet. So it's it's pretty clear to me that and like I said, the scientific inference you know suggests that baits locations where we artificially aggregate or concentrate deer, if there's sick deer at that location, that it's going to enhance transmission risk to other animals. Just. There's, there's really very little doubt about it. Yeah. Is, is there anything that would punch holes in what you just said, Brian? I, I've never read or heard anything 
counter to what you just said as the basics of artificial concentrations enhanced transmission yeah we hear that well deer are social animals and they're they're having contact anyway yeah they sure are you know there's grooming you know there are bachelor groups of males early in the fall but why would we want to increase or enhance the opportunities you know for that sort of infectious contact either with another animal or with those prions that are persisting out into the environment so just from a, like I said, from, a, from an inferential standpoint, doesn't make a lot of sense. Here's, here's, a, here's an analogy that we might be able to think of. So the last three years, uh, a lot of humans have, uh, have practiced social distancing, right? Yep. Whether it's staying six feet apart in line at the grocery store or whether it's not going to churches often or being on airplanes or whatever. Right, due to doing remote COVID. podcasts, <laughs> yeah, instead of in in place. But you know, an offshoot, the last two winters of human influenza outbreaks have been so low, some of the lowest we have seen, as a consequence of people practicing social distancing and minimizing the the frequency of getting together in time and space. We've seen an offshoot in another infectious disease that kills a lot of humans every year as well. You know, so these humans are still, you know, even if I don't want to, I still got to go to the grocery store once in a while. I got to go to the hardware store once in a while and, you know, office and things like that. But we, you know, in the last couple of years, we've seen dramatic declines in outbreaks of human influenza. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'll kind of just to riff off of that a little bit. You know, we rightfully get folks asking about, you know, natural deer behavior. We have a really snowy year this year in North Dakota. So there's a lot of deer yarded up anyway. Um, and so there's certainly a level of transmission out there that, um, you know, a level of risk of transmission out there that we can't control. Um, but I guess it's, I don't quite see how we use, how we can use that to justify just completely opening the gates and saying, uh, because of that, it's all, let's just make it rain with transmission risk. You know, let's start putting out piles in August through, through December. Um, so I think that's a bit of a, a tough argument to make. Um, you know, and, and I guess going back to what you said earlier, Andy, like another kind of, I'm not sure it's one of those tenets of the model, but um, kind of a, a big concept around how we manage is this idea of adaptive management, meaning that, yep. you know, we, we take all the information we have, all, all the information yielded by science and the data that we as agencies collect, and we try to make the best, most informed decisions, um, but also uh, recognize that as new information comes in, we, we adjust accordingly. So, you know, right now, um, just the the vast majority of science points us in a certain direction, and so um, you know indicates that uh, that baiting or feeding is a a, a meaningful uh, contributes a meaningful amount of risk of transmission. That being said, like I'll go on on record here and say that if if good uh, science, you know, vetted science 
comes down the road that somehow establishes that, you know, almost all transmission happens in some other way, like we will certainly take that into consideration. And, um, you know, if we have some really good evidence to suggest that baiting can be conducted in a you know, very low risk way, then absolutely, we, we would have no problem with that. But that's not what the science yields right now, you know, and we have to stay, um, you know, uh, stay true to, to what direction that points us. Yeah, that, uh, and that that's kind of the irony of it, right? We have people within the hunting community who hold our agencies accountable to managing with best possible science until maybe the best possible science doesn't necessarily result in their preferred outcome. And then it's, well, let's discount their science or let's hold them to some standard like brian pointed out yeah you got 50 million dollars in 15 years of time we can conduct that study you know to you can't disprove everything that somebody throws out there you take what you have and you make the best possible decisions and you know here's the part that's kind of strange to me i i know so many agency people across the country at all levels you know federal state whatever and I don't know any of you who say, let me go to work tomorrow and figure out how I can really lay the pipe to hunters. <laughs> I, I have yet to see that, but that's the implied argument that some make when they introduce a bill like is being introduced in, in North Dakota as if Brian and Charlie got on the phone and said, boy, how, how could we really upset the the cart here for hunters in North Dakota. Uh, I just, I, that's what I'd like to do this week. I don't have enough to do. I think I need to come up with some ideas like that. And yeah, you, you think about the folly of that. You think about the irony of people wanting to hold you accountable for using the best science to get the best outcomes until it's not the science they want. Yeah, I'll say and, two things off of that. Like, one is that, um, you know, before working for this agency, I thought I was kind of a hunting and fishing nut, you know, like, um, it's what I spent a heck of a lot of time and money doing. And then I came and worked for this agency. It's like, you want to meet folks that are nuts about hunting and fishing, like <laughs> come talk to anybody that works for North Dakota game and fish. Like that's what they live and breathe. So absolutely. The other thing that's a bit lighthearted, I guess, that's sort of cracks me up when I'm, uh, you know, can remove myself from the situation enough is sort of this, paradoxical argument that both uh that both our agency doesn't have science but also that science is bullshit you know so it's like one yeah. or the other you know like uh <laughs> either make decisions off of science or decide that that science shouldn't be used but like we're kind of accused of doing both you know so yeah. anyway it's just kind of a funny position to be yeah. in but and i think that illustrates the hypocrisy or at least the the motivation behind some of those who want to take tools away from folks like the two of you. You guys need every tool possible. And if we can come up with more tools, let's hope we can. Absolutely. But yep. taking those tools away, I mean, Brian, you made, I did not know of the, I knew, I was aware of the earn a buck thing, uh, but I didn't know it was taken away from Wisconsin game managers. And I started thinking about that. It's like, why why do politicians want to get involved and tell you guys how to do your job or to, in this, you know, the analogy we've been using, reduce to the number of tools in your box? It's crazy. Uh, 
what else do you guys want the audience to take away from this? I, I mean, we could go on and on and on forever. I, I always like to be an optimist. And one thing that worries me, I think one of you touched on it, is if we let this disease just go and go and go, what if hunters say, you know what, I'm done with this. I, I just, like, I think it was you, Brian, said that four out of the last five deer I shot test positive. Yeah, heck with it, I'm done. That is not the future for a strong hunting community, a strong hunting culture, and the ability for us to have game agencies to support science for all the other things. Pretty pretty uh, hard so, to manage deer, too, without hunters, right? Yeah. Yeah, and especially so the I, further east you get, you know, where, you know, population densities are at all-time highs. Yeah, and, yeah. and the impacts of too many deer are many. You know, there's substantial yeah. deer impacts. And so how do we manage, you know, these deer populations moving into the future? I mean, across the board, I think, you know, the data suggests that, you know, hunters like, you know, you and me, Randy, Charlie's got a little bit more time. We're not really, <laughs> we're not replacing ourselves to the degree, you know, that's necessary to keep, you know, hunting populations, you know, moving. They, you know, they not only do they help you know manage deer populations, but they help keep agencies afloat and support all those other activities. Uh, yeah, hunting's super, super critical. Um, yeah, yeah, it's a, it's so a really I, a, a you know the definition of a of a wicked problem. You know, chronic wasting disease where there's no simple answers, and it'll take buy-in and support from broad swaths of different stakeholders. And sometimes, you know, as we've identified, the the prescriptions are not going to be savory or as palatable as as we might want them to be. But ignoring the issue, the outcomes are are likely not very good. And um, so, so, in addition to AFWA, we've talked about the Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies, WAFWA, or the Western Association, Western. Yep. came out several years ago with a series of, of recommendations, again, for adaptive management. Charlie brought up adaptive management. Try, learn, monitor, adapt, alter your practices. In the in the beginning of that document, there's a there's a quote in there that I just I keep coming back to. I use it in in many presentations on chronic wasting disease, and the authors identify that you know hey once once CWD is is well established in a free ranging population, you're probably not going to get rid of it. Right, the best you're going to be able yep. to do is to try and manage to alter disease outcomes. But then this quote comes in says, opportunities remain for responsible management agencies to stabilize or suppress CWD outbreaks and thereby minimize impacts and potentially irreparable harm. And that last key there, irreparable harm, that's the one that just mm, keeps coming back to me. That's what we don't want. You know, deer are this, you know, cervids are hunting as this tremendous resource, this tremendous activity. Uh, the North American model, you know, even though it might have, have some dings in that model here and there, it's still, you know, it's been very influential, you know, over the course of the last century on, on helping recover, restore, you know, wildlife and habitats, you know. Um, so yeah. this thing we call hunting you know, and our deer, our North American model, these are all pretty important things. And so agencies like Charlie's, 
you know, they have that responsibility. So they're looking out for the long-term viability for the resource, you know, and for the hunters as well. You know, again, to try and reduce that the chances for that potentially irreparable harm, because nobody wants to see that. Yeah. So I'm going to let each of you think about, well, I'm not going to give you much time to think about the optimism part of it. Uh, but I'm, I wake up every day. Grandma used to tell me, you know what, if you think it's a good day or a bad day, you're probably right. Um, in other words, uh, be happy and and optimistic and you're probably going to have a better day. So in all of this, I, I, I do worry that the discussion around wildlife diseases, in this case, CWD gets us in this mood, almost doom and gloom that the end is near, why bother, stuff like that. But I talked to enough of, of all of you and, and your peers to know that there's always good stuff going on and that the, the end isn't near if we are positive, if, if we take what we know, we implement it, and we lead. Uh, any points of, of progress or optimism that... Uh, you'd leave an audience with as it relates to this disease? Well, I think so. But again, you know, Charlie pointed out that, you know, and and I agree that I think I've earned the right over my career to be, you know, called a curmudgeon, you know? Um, (laughs) But I do think there's some, there's, there's possibilities. I look at the tools that we have available, not the tools of the future, the tools we have today. We can alter disease outcomes if we can figure out how to apply these tools. Uh, there's a branch of social science now we refer to as, you know, human dimensions. And Charlie's probably got a human dimensions, you know, group in his agency who can help us learn how to better communicate with our stakeholders, hunters, anglers, landowners. And historically, this group has has helped us understand these conservation behaviors, and and they can also help us become better at the things we do, better communicators to bring folks along where we can alter conservation behaviors as well, where we we can show people how substantial this is and how altering their their ultimate behaviors out in the field, their hunting behaviors can make a difference. And I see individual landowners out there who are taking this to heart, who have seen CWD on their land. You know, now they're in the place where it's not like on our land, we don't kill one or two. We kill seven or eight positives every year. And wow. they're, they're adapting how they hunt. And a good friend of mine, you know, you've probably heard him. His name is Doug Duran. And, and yep. you know, he, he manages some land. It's got CWD. And, and he, you know, one of his mottos is, you know, it's not ours, it's our turn, right? And that goes along mm, yep. with Leopold's land ethic, that we are more than, you know, just a casual observers, that we are part of these ecosystems. And we can make a difference in these ecosystems, these systems and processes. And I like what Doug as to say, yeah, he and I are about in the, in the same age group. And when we grew up, when we were first introduced to deer hunting, yeah, we had this philosophy. It was called, if it's brown, it's down. 
right? Um, <laughs> it was before yeah. the the time of letting you know deer grow into older age classes, and now he's taken up that philosophy that he grew up with hunting about you know what we take safe ethical shots and we take a lot of them he invites people to his land to enjoy hunting the way that he learned how to hunt growing up it's the way how i learned to hunt growing up as well it was so much fun it was unbelievable and i guarantee you yeah if it you know if if a neighbor killed a two and a half or three and a half year old buck it was hanging by the out in the tree right next to the road for the whole world to see but no none of us were ashamed of killing you know yearling bucks or does we put venison in the freezer and i tell you what we had fun deer hunting and so you know i think it's great that that Doug is spreading the word. He's having fun hunting on his land. He's talking to lots of different people. Some of them want nothing to do with it, but others are trying to emulate the same thing. Let's get back and, and get back to, you know, putting some fun into it and, and hunt hard, hunt long, and try to promote differential outcomes with regard to disease and populations and ecosystems as a whole. So I don't know if I yeah. can do any better than that. Well, Doug owes you for that one. He's he he is a great advocate for that, and I love him. I lo- I love the way he does it. And uh, if uh, that's a great way to look at it, Brian, is there's so much opportunity out there to go and have fun, put food in the freezer, and carry on these traditions that we've had. And I, you and I, being close to the same age, yeah. If I would have shot a three-year-old deer, my dad would have been at every coffee shop, every deer camp in northern Minnesota bragging me up. And uh, my first deer was a doe, and he kind of did that anyhow. But uh, so, Charlie, you got anything to leave him with that's... uh, Boy, I have a hard time beating that for last word. I mean, I, you know, as I mentioned before, it's stuff is probably, there's some impassioned conversation happening in our state right now but i mean it i do sincerely believe that at the at the end of the day um you know everybody involved in that conversation does want sort of the same thing and it's kind of that um that joy that that brian alluded to so i think you know if we can keep that at the forefront of the conversation um you know we'll end in the right place yeah well, guys, I can't thank you enough for your time, and uh, I hope I can lean on you again for more information because I have this feeling this issue's not going away. I'll, I'll be—I'll go away before this issue goes away. Uh, but my audience counts on me to try bring people who are the real experts. I'm not the real expert. The people promoting this stuff on maybe contrary ideas or pushing for you guys to lose your toolbox uh, kit, Charlie. They're not the real experts. Uh, people like you are. You live, breathe, you're committed to the cause of, of our wildlife. And that's why anytime I can give a platform to people like you, uh, I want to do that. And I think my audience counts on me to do that. So thank you guys for being here. And uh, I, next time uh, we'll pick it up and, and go on even further. But uh, I've already stole 90 minutes of your time. Oh, send, send me an invoice. <laughs> nah, sharing information is, is fun. You know, I've, I've noted you know, 
You talk to more people on a regular basis than I can ever hope to. And so if I can, if folks like Charlie and I can help share a message, you know, a science-based message, then I can't imagine a better better way to spend 90 minutes on a, on a Monday afternoon. So thanks for the well, opportunity. Yeah. Well, thank you, Brian. Thank you, Charlie. You guys have a great rest of your day and uh, let me know if I can be of any help. When the 